Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, indeed. This is What on Earth, the podcast asking the big question, what on earth is going on as Australia and the world transitions to a post-carbon world? We look at what is going on under the earth, above the earth and around the world. My name is James Scotland, General Manager of Supply Chain for the Australian Industry Group. And joining me each episode, as always, are my two uh, learned colleagues. Firstly, Paul Hodson, Principal Advisor of Paul Hodson Advisory. That's easy for me to say. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. How are you? Hi, Tenant. Hello. And Tenant Reid, Head of Energy and Environment for Australian Industry Group. Hello, Tenant. G'day. Good to be here. So there's a fair bit going on at the moment around the world and particularly in Australia when it comes to the transition authority. And I think business people everywhere are saying, what on earth is going on? Before, I wanted to talk about a few things, the National Reconstruction Fund. We should talk about the safeguard mechanism that's been passed in Parliament and uh, even touch on nuclear later on. But before we get to that, uh, in our last episode, we talked about EVs and the... um, infrastructure opportunities that are available and how there is a lot to, to be done. There's a lot to be done in many different areas of the economy. We received a, a question from a listener who said, does this mean that the Australian companies will have a lot of opportunities overseas, particularly in the developing world? Uh, it turns out this, listener's was, this listener was a young man when his father was given a contract to lay fibre optic cable. There's a blast from the past. Uh, in, I think, uh, West Timor, you know, uh, so to mm. bring the West Timor into the, the modern internet world. Uh, and will we see that same sort of opportunity for Australian companies in the, in the clean energy uh, transition? Um, thoughts? Absolutely. Um, uh, in fact, there's lots of companies, uh, just like the fibre optic cable laying, uh, there's opportunities in, you know, putting in transmission infrastructure, um, in storage, in, in uh, uh, renewable generation, but also in things like electric vehicle charging. So uh, uh, Tritium is probably a company known to a lot of list- listeners, an Australian-based company uh, with, a, with a factory here, that, uh, but actually has been also building factories around the world as well as an Australian company. So uh, yeah, lots of, lots of opportunities. Um, and I think that's the thing. When you look at it, it's not just about even EVs. It's about the infrastructure. It's then about where the energy comes from. Um, it's the transmission. It's the storage. It's the generation. Um, it's also then the recycling um, and the uh, the refurbishment and the, uh, the 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 servicing and everything else. So it's kind of it's really worth kind of if you like spreading out all those opportunities uh, from the mining right through manufacturing, right through servicing and, uh, and operations and, and then into afterlife or end of life or, or, or second life, if you like, for, uh, for those materials. So uh, definitely lots of opportunities, James. Perhaps the uh, essence of the question was, will Australian companies have an advantage or have a fair crack at doing that in, in these areas? Uh, does Australia come with a cachet of credibility? Well, on the EV front, we're slightly we are slightly held back by the fact that um, for a long time we have been uh, nowheresville uh, on EV deployment, and and that is starting to turn around. There has been an acceleration of uh, EV uptake within Australia, but there's been an acceleration of EV uptake everywhere, and uh, we we are still not 
locally a place with a vast amount of experience in uh, managing EV charging, uh, providing infrastructure and so on. We have some great companies and, you know, uh, smarts and um, uh, patient capital and things that can make a difference, uh, but uh, we are operating in a world where um, other nations uh, have got a lot more going on with uh, electric vehicles than we have had to date. I, I took uh, my BMW in for a service yesterday to what they call the luxury vehicle service, BMW's luxury vehicle service, very, very fancy. And I spent some time walking around the showroom and the majority of those vehicles are now EV. Uh, I hadn't seen that before, but the majority of the BMW. Uh, and I understand, well, and, and I think Paul's mentioned before that uh, MGs are... MG Electric Vehicle is the largest selling vehicle in Australia, I think. That's right. So we're getting there. We're getting there, Tanner. What, what does the luxury service entail? I'm envisaging like uh, ostrich feathers mm. being waved across the bonnet, uh, sea sponges being gently buffed against the, the doors. What, what goes on? No, I, I would imagine so. It also means I get a free coffee and a carrot cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds pretty nice. So did you have a comment, Paul? About Australia, Australia's business opportunities overseas, not about my luxury vehicle service. Well, I don't know. I've got lots of questions about the luxury vehicle service. <laughs> um, but I, look, I think we are we are slowly gearing up. But but uh, it's about how we take opportunity and how we keep that opportunity in Australia for the infrastructure. Um, you know, people will be well aware that we were world leaders in uh, photovoltaic uh, cells and solar generation. Um, but uh, but now perhaps there's a couple of uh, or there's at least one manufacturer of solar panels in Australia, but but nothing much else. Um, so it's kind of, you know, how do we keep that opportunity? Um, and part of it, I think, is actually how do we scale domestically? Um, if we scale domestically, we, uh, we, we, we keep that advantage. I think if we don't scale domestically, we, uh, we, we have the, the danger of those companies being bought and moved offshore. That's probably a nice segue into the next uh, next topic, and I hope that answers your question, Patrick. But I'm sure we will in the next uh, in the next topic, which is uh, the the uh, Prime Minister's announcement of the National Reconstruction Fund. I'll get one of you to explain what that is. I'll intro it by saying, uh, Indus Willocks, our CEO, said that he believed the National Reconstruction Fund quote will help Australia to benefit from digitalisation, automation, AI, and the clean energy revolution. That's a big statement from uh, from from Innes. Uh, who wants to explain what the National Reconstruction Fund means for us, for business, and for the clean energy revolution? I'll give a I'll give a quick first go, and then maybe Paul can add some um, some more analysis to it. But the 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 National Reconstruction Fund, which I don't think we've all settled on on one contraction for, I would vote for the NERF, but. Uh, is a like a mega version of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation in terms of it's a big government fund that's got uh, a, a large bucket of money, in this case, $15 billion, uh, to invest through uh, debt and equity uh, in good things. And unlike CFC, this has a, a much broader mandate that is about uh, opportunity in a whole bunch of different sectors that the government nominated uh, before they were the government. It was an election commitment to this policy. Uh, so, yes, involvement in critical minerals, processing in 
the energy transition for hard to abate sectors, but also in uh, food and fiber, uh, in advanced manufacturing, in uh, high technology opportunities around AI or quantum computing, and a few more things. Like there's a lot in there, but how it does those things is uh, to find or be found by uh, companies that that want to do things in in those spaces and provide them with loans uh, or with equity investments to help those opportunities be taken up. There are some questions we could talk about, about whether it is actually up for the very large job that the government has in mind for it with the current design. Uh, but that's that's like the 101. I don't know, Paul, do you think it's going to work? That's the uh, that's the question, I guess, isn't it, Tennant? I mean, I think it's a fantastic initiative, um, but uh, having had a long career uh, working in these types of fields, um, I do have some concerns. Um, one, one concern is that we're now probably about two years from the next federal election um, and how quickly you can move on establishing it um, and making sure you're putting the right investments um, and that the investments are connected with other areas of government policy and other government initiatives and that you're not just firing grants out through a Nerf gun um, uh, in a in a silo. You guys are on fire today. A, you guys are on fire. In a, uh, the Nerf gun. A tenant yeah. set me up for that one. Um, but, you know, you could just, because it's a lot of money, um, the CFC has been wildly successful, but I would say that it's, um, and with all due reference to them, I think it's possibly a simpler task in projects in clean energy than it is doing it in manufacturing across a whole bunch of priority sectors, which requires not just project funding, but it requires capability building. It requires a whole bunch of connections and clustering, uh, alignment of procurement policies and government policies, skilling and training, and a whole range of other things to make this work. And this really needs to be seen as something over the next 10 years plus not something between now and the next election uh, cycle. And we know even how the CFC, which was established, you know, almost 11 years ago, how uh, a change of government really uh, almost had them in the... That's the Clean Energy Finance. Yeah. So had... That's the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. So them and ARENA, although they were legislated, uh, it, it was a very close call in the Senate whether they were going to be disbanded. Um, and so, uh, so there's a, there's a short-term, long-term thing here and how to make sure that the right advice, the right consultation, the right strategic thinking is brought to the NRF um, and really does genuinely build the capacity of manufacturing and the business case for manufacturing. It isn't just a series of uh, uh, individual grant announcements. I think it, uh, uh, equity and, uh, and loan announcements is going to be really critical, and and I, I this. yeah, and I, I'm hoping I'm I, you know always hopeful as you know James really optimistic, um, but it's it's a, it's a, a really ambitious task, and it's going to require all hands on deck. I think I think you raised some interesting points, and I'll throw it back to Tenet. Uh, I one of the issues that one of the ideas that came into my mind was the Prime Minister talked about 
We have critical minerals, so therefore we can produce a whole value chain of critical minerals up to finished product. And yet there's plenty of economists that will say that's not necessarily a good business case. You know, we are a long way from the rest of the world, all those other issues of when you're thinking about supply chains, you don't always make it near the source, you make it closer to market. Tenant? Yeah, so there are arguments that unlike many, many previous iterations of the why don't we do value-added here uh, argument, that there are some major global geopolitical and economic changes that make this kind of concept much more viable than it has been in the past. The, the sense that many countries have of caution about over-reliance on uh, supply chains that uh, largely uh, reside in China uh, and, and, and more broadly a value in diversification of supply chains, um, you know, shifts in, in relative labour costs and the amount of automation and the extent to which uh, a place like Australia can be competitive uh, on cost uh, compared to other places. But... It's still the case that uh, there's a uh, either a cost gap to bridge or a degree of, of risk and uncertainty involved in trying to make these investments here. And the worry that I would have is that the NERF may not have enough uh, risk appetite and capacity to um, to deploy uh, capital at a low return uh, to to government to actually make the difference mm-hmm. for a lot of these things. Like the, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation has, uh, for much of its time, had a relatively risk-averse investment mandate provided to it by uh, the previous federal government. Uh, and, you know, it, it, the, the current government came to office with a, a set of commitments that envisaged, like their budgeting envisaged the NERF not actually costing the budget much because it was going to be acquiring assets, uh, whether those are um, debt that will be repaid or equity that will, will have a value. And so, you know, you can you can make a big dollar announcement, but also be comfortable that it won't hit the budget much, uh, if at all. But that's like... you. Yes, trying to satisfy too many different things. If you want to make a big difference to what happens in the economy as a result of something like this, um, you need to be prepared to lose money either through um, offering debt at uh, well below a commercial rate or having a high risk appetite for the possibility that some of your bets won't pan out. And if all of your bets pan out, they probably weren't very interesting bets. Uh, So... That's going to be a real balancing act for this thing as it as it gets implemented. It could do some great stuff, and the CFC within its limited mandate, like I agree with Paul, it's been highly successful. But this thing's got like ten times as many things it's being asked to do, and it's being asked to not lose a dollar in the process, more or less. Paul. Yeah, so I was going to just add to that. Look, I think it is. I mean, I think we all want to see it succeed, but. Um, but without looking at the the particular guidelines and the like, I mean, it's going to there's going to have to be a focus on some of that supporting infrastructure, on clusters, on how do you build a supply chain. Um, I'd be really interested to know what supporting programs like the Entrepreneurs Program, uh, where that might sit. 
Um, I understand that they might be finishing at the end of June. Certainly, I think that's when the contracts currently run out. Yeah. Uh, industry growth centres aren't being funded anymore. Having those uh, sitting alongside the National Reconstruction Fund on those priority sectors would have been useful. Um, where is Austrade in this? Where is CSIRO in this? Uh, where is the industry capability network? Um, where is, you know, how does, how does this sit within the overall ecosystem? And how do we also make sure that we don't build a all or nothing manufacturing sector? Um, it's much more nuanced now. Um, companies around the world are wanting to manufacture in multiple places. Um, the important thing is strategically, how do we use something like the NRF to ensure that we keep the most value add in Australia, but we actually also have those companies manufacturing overseas. Tritium, for example, now still has its head office in Brisbane, still has significant manufacturing and R&D and technology and uh, innovation and all the head office functions, um, but its largest manufacturing facility is in Tennessee. Um, those things make sense. Um, you want to be around the world. So we actually need to have a really sophisticated and strategic approach to how this all works as a total ecosystem and their NERF is, is part of that. It's not going to be the, the sole uh, supporter of manufacturing. For those who don't know, Tritium is a business that was started by some uni graduates from a university in Brisbane uh, that make uh, that designed a, uh, a very clever fast car charging station and that's being rolled out across autobahns in Europe and across all across America, built uh, largely in Tennessee. As, as, as Paul said, it's a great success story. What do we think about the NERF if we're a business person? It sounds like there is opportunities, but to be a little bit hesitant until all details are, are out or wh- where should I as a business person sit with my thinking right now? So we, we're all going to find out in the next few months, I think. Uh, but again, th- this is like the, maybe not the son of, maybe the the the, the niece or nephew of uh, the CEFC. And CEFC has done two things. It's gone out and done deals directly, but also it's partnered with uh, commercial finance inst- institutions to increase its reach uh, and um, be able to um, deal with smaller uh, opportunities that it doesn't have the capacity to to, to handle itself. So I, I think there's probably going to be a few channels into the NERF uh, and they're going to be very actively going out and, and, and looking for uh, for deals to do. Um, but what you should, be, you should be thinking about, I think, is are you up for um, an equity investment from a government entity? Uh, because that's one of the options. Uh, or are you only interested in debt? Or are, are either of those things not particularly mm. helpful to you? Or it should be a right. Sorry, I was just going to say that uh, I think the advisory side of that is going to be really important. Um, uh, there wouldn't be a lot of manufacturers that would go, oh, yes, I'm ready. Um, uh, there's a there's an equity opportunity. I should go for it. Uh, you need to understand your growth strategy, and that's where I think it links with other advisory functions like the entrepreneurs program, like the industry growth centres, uh, like some of the clusters that exist around the country, and some of the great industry associations and and regional engineering organisations. And it's how do how do you tap into that to make sure that you come up with with proposals that are going to uh, you know, really deliver a uh, bang for the buck 
Um, I think one of the things that NERF might be able to do and the CFC has done is actually educate the financial sector. I, I think we're our financial sector in Australia is not as uh, not as close and uh, not as uh, sophisticated in 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 investing in manufacturing opportunities. I think they're much better in media, retail, mining, property, uh, potentially agriculture. Um, but getting into manu- investing, uh, if we could improve the financial markets here and how they invest and how they see manufacturing and technology opportunities, that would be a fantastic win for the NERF. I would have thought. One of the issues for financing, of course, is it's a rate for risk. What's the risk? And so I'll rate according, according to, to that risk. But it's hard to figure out the risk when it's a brand new, brand new industry. That's, that's the challenge. And we've seen that in, in uh, the IT industry in the last 20 or 30 years. You know, yeah. what's, the cha- what's the risk? And, and that, that unfamiliarity is part of the, a big part of the case for government to do something in this space. Yeah, of course, yeah. But then the government's got to have the appetite for the risk that the private sector doesn't. And it's hard to do that while having no impact on the budget. Other countries do this well, though, don't they, Tennant? Uh, I'm sort of thinking Germany and those sort of places that say, yeah, let's take the risk. So they, they do and they don't. Um, like I would say uh, one of the most substantively successful and politically disastrous uh, pushes in this space in recent memory was the um, the stimulus uh, and economic recovery package that the Obama administration negotiated through Congress uh, in um, 2009-10. And that package included some far-sighted loan guarantees for a bunch of clean energy businesses. Uh, And one of those businesses was uh, an obscure outfit called Tesla, Mm. Uh, who uh, th- those loan guarantees helped them to, to grow and to survive a period when they might otherwise have gone under. Uh, and, you know, early, any early investor in Tesla would say, my God, what a, what a genius I was. Uh, but that program is mostly remembered because it uh, also lent to a business called Solyndra, which had, uh, at the time, plausible, innovative um, solar generation technology. And the problem that it was solving turned out to be solved better by just um, producing uh, standard silicon uh, more and more cheaply. Um, So that business went under and politics regarded uh, one notable failure as invalidating the whole program. Uh, And, you know, that everybody contributes to that kind of problem. Uh, Politicians do, media does. Uh, bureaucrats do, um, we, we tend to focus on failures. Uh, like if a program like that produced 10 cylinders and one Tesla, I think mm. you'd say, bloody well done, program. Um, that's amazing. But that that is not how it plays out in in most places. Well, that was certainly the, 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 the lesson from the IT industry back in the turn of the century where, where there was a lot of failures but a few rippers that, that, that made a lot of money. Yeah. Well, what's the economic development approach to this? Uh, rate for risk, government intervention, businesses trying to get going. How does it work in economic development? Well, I think it's, I think it's good. There is a role for government, I think, in shaping um, the opportunity and, and, and early incentivizing um, until the private sector really understands uh, and can, can price the risk um, and can understand the markets and understand the capability 
Um, so I think there's a really there's a really good opportunity to do that. Um, this is where I think it's difficult, though, with you know maybe two years to the next election, with um, I suspect uh, lots of media and opposition will be asking next week, what's the you know what's what are the returns coming out of the nerf? You know what are you know you said you were doing this, you're putting this much money in, how's that? And and holding the line on that is very difficult. Um, and so what you end up doing is that uh, the the danger is that the people in the nerf will start looking around for the early opportunities, the early the quick wins. The things that were going to be funded anyway that they can attach the nerve to um, and potentially be crowding out other investment uh, by by making sure that they've got some case studies before the thing runs before it, before it's really got started um, that that becomes a danger I think um, it, it it is really difficult but I think there are some some great ways of doing that but it it requires uh, it requires a longer term approach and 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 holding the political line I think. On, on some of this as well, rather than the nonsense of, you know, uh, within the first year, how many jobs have been created by the NERF. Um, we've seen that. Uh, so everyone talks about the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. We could talk about the Northern Australian Infrastructure Fund. Um, not, uh, not every uh, equity and debt opportunity uh, is a success. Um, and, uh, and tenants outlined that out of the US. Yeah. It's a very dangerous place, actually, for governments to play uh in in that because you might get 10 uh in the private sector you're used to looking at this as a portfolio right you get a couple of outstanding tesla like winners uh you get a whole bunch that bump along and maybe make enough um and you get a couple of duds um the duds are where everyone focuses when it's a government um and that's what you'll be remembered by um and that's that that does make it difficult and therefore it does potentially make it much more politically uh, 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 risk adverse, um, and that might actually constrain the opportunity that comes out of something like NERF. Well, seeing as we've covered all the fun stuff, let's get into something a bit more serious. <laughs> and that brings us to safeguards, um, the safeguard mechanism. In our last uh, podcast, uh, Tenet, you gave us a brief on what the safeguard mechanism might look like. Uh, but now, uh, a little while ago, uh, there was some settlement in 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 Parliament as to what happened, what it's going to look like. Quoting Innes Willocks again, uh, Innes says, the uh, safeguard mechanism provides much-needed certainty that Australia is serious about its emission goals and the centrality of competitive industries achieving them. Sounds good, is it? Look, the the outcome uh, took, a, took a lot of getting, uh, and it's not the last word. Like this is this is very clearly uh, a policy that's going to keep evolving uh, over time. The government's going to uh, review some important questions around it later this year. Uh, they're going to uh, do a bigger review of uh, some major scheme settings in 2026, 27. But this is a significant step. So, so just say- review it briefly now yeah. as to. Okay, so the safeguard mechanism sets uh, limits on the emissions from large facilities in Australia. Uh, until now, it has been set up uh, with with limits that mostly were above actual emissions uh, and which just stayed uh, level. Uh, it was it didn't have a very clear, explicit purpose. Its its underlying purpose was to be changed eventually into what the government, the, the new government is doing. 
Uh, that is what people in the previous government had in mind, uh, even though their, their colleagues may not have fully acknowledged that at the time. Uh, but it is now being uh, changed so that the baselines are tight. Uh, they're, they're connected to um, recent actual emissions and they're going to be reduced every year to contribute to the national emissions goals. Companies that are covered or facilities that are covered have got flexibility options. They can do stuff internally to reduce their emissions. They can buy offsets. They can buy safeguard mechanism credits from other facilities that have beaten their baselines. Uh, and they've got a couple of other bits of flexibility. So uh, the 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 deal making that was done uh, went to uh, the concerns from the crossbenchers and the Greens about would there be too much reliance on offsets and would there be uh, so many emissions from new coal and gas facilities that are proposed by uh, by various companies that the um, emissions budgets couldn't be achieved. And so there's been some compromise on both of those things. There is now a, uh, a hard absolute cap uh, on total emissions uh, as a part of this scheme. Uh, and there's also uh, an, ele- an element of even without counting offsets, overall emissions covered by it have got to fall. Uh, as well as that, there's some transparency um, rules around declaring if you're using a, a large volume of offsets to meet your targets, explaining why that is the case, uh, and tight baselines for new gas facilities in particular. So uh, confirming quite a tight interpretation of international best practice for things like the Beetaloo Basin um, development proposals uh, and any other new uh, gas wells proposed to as backfill for existing LNG exports. And then the final thing that I would highlight from all of it is uh, the tighter baselines for gas in particular opened up a little extra space in the government's notional carbon budget and that space is being used uh, to ease the requirements on domestic manufacturing uh, with a uh, an easier to get into system of um, slightly uh, to well somewhat lower decline rates um, in your baselines. So slower declines for those manufacturers that would have the hardest time competing uh, under a, a, a tighter carbon constraint. Now that bit of it won't hold together forever, and the government has committed extra committed uh, in in the deal that recently was made to uh, review urgently uh, options for an Australian carbon border adjustment, which is a topic very close to my heart, uh, as a a potentially uh, a more sustainable solution to those carbon competitiveness risks. Would that replace the safeguard? No, that would be a a complement to it, but it would probably replace this system of slower declines for uh-huh. some, uh, which is harder to sustain over time. What was your thoughts when you heard the the, the final thing, Paul? Before you gather your thoughts, you know, I understand the crossbenchers' concerns about emissions trading. It, it seems like that is something that is always contentious, uh, whether or not we're really solving the problem by... Uh, by trading on emissions. Uh, but over to you, what are you what, what's your thoughts on the safeguard mechanism? Look, I think, it's a, I think it's a really good building block 
James, for all the reasons tenants just outlined, but it is one of the building blocks. And I think one of the things that we've seen, particularly over the last decade in Australia, is that those blocks get knocked over rather than get built on. Um, and I think there is a danger that the safeguard mechanism, it, it's a good first step, um, uh, along with a whole range of other things that are happening. How they We're going to have to use that knocked over rather than built on. That's a very nice line. Well, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, the, the safeguard mechanism, it's kind of, there's a bit of a rebuilding of, I guess, some of the, the infrastructure, some of the, uh, the framework for, uh, for reducing our emissions. Um, I'm, I'm probably more interested in, the, you know, how do we ramp up our renewable generation uh, uh, storage transmission? I think uh, the figure that keeps, you know, that I keep thinking of is the, the, the 3,000 times uh, uh, amount of solar radiation that hits Australia each year in energy terms compared to the amount of coal and gas that we produce um, is uh, is huge. Um, uh, I'm not a big fan of kind of, um, I think the emissions trading and um, and carbon credits and stuff is fine, but I think we, we really need to be incentivizing and, and pushing ahead on really scaling up the amount of clean energy that we're generating. Um, in Australia and actually get to the point where these businesses see the commerciality um, we, as quick as possible. We can get to the commercial sense where people are making money out of clean energy. They're making money out of green hydrogen. They're making out uh, money out of low and zero emission products and services. I think that's, that's where we need to move to in Australia um, as quick as we can. And the safeguard mechanism is a useful part of that, but it's not going to do the job on its own. I think the idea that they, it used to be very popular, and we recently saw uh, a fresh statement of it from the Productivity Commission in their, their big review of options for Australian prosperity, the idea that if you've got an economy-wide carbon price, which this is not yet, um, it's, it's covering about uh, 28% of national emissions, but if you've got that economy-wide carbon price, that's all you need, and you can abolish every other policy in the space pretty much unless it's you know R&D or uh, something quite narrow uh, that idea does not have a lot of credibility anymore um, pricing is a is a very useful tool but uh, you need you need a whole toolbox from what you described before it sounds like this could be an administrative nightmare for some companies is it is it going to be easy enough to do with with modern systems or is there still a lot of we're going to add a whole bunch more people to our businesses just to manage it like we did with the GST. So I don't, I don't want to be too blasé about it, but uh, for the couple of hundred facilities that are covered by this, they are already doing a lot of work to comply with the National Greenhouse and Energy Reporting Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, there are some administ- administrative bells and whistles added on as a, as a part of this. The trade exposed baseline adjusted bit, the, the, the slower rate for some, um, is, is going to take a, a bit of work to, to sort out. Uh, and additional work would be required uh, if uh, the carbon border adjustment mechanism comes about, although there's there's much more practical ways to do that than uh, people might at first fear. So, look, I think that side of it's going to be okay. Um, but certainly, you know, some work for for auditors, some work for consultants. Um, but a lot of like the main work is the substantive work of how's your company going to do. The, the, the internal emissions reductions that'll set you up best for the long term or where are you going to find 
uh, offsets or safeguard mechanism credits that are going to um, uh, be an, an alternative way of meeting your obligations. Yeah, get, get, get companies focused on what the important parts are. Paul, does the national, the NERF and the safeguards bring us closer to a, uh, a post-carbon economy? Uh, hopefully, yes. Um, and there's a whole range of other things. Yeah, well, just, look, there's just the whole, um, um, I don't, it, the, the, the investment that's going into transmission infrastructure, there's the existing funds of the CFC and ARENA, and there's a whole range of other things together. And I think it's how they, if we can get them working in sync, um, then we're going to be able to accelerate and realise, you know, this great opportunity that we've got for Australia. Um, if they're if they're either working in silos, if they're if they're a threat of being not built on but pushed over, um, and I, you know, the safeguard mechanism is kind of driving down that line where the opposition's not fully on board, uh, the Greens and the Teals don't think that it goes, you know, far enough. Um, I don't think, you know, a lot of us would be able to look back a decade ago and go, well, we saw, we saw how this can end up. Um, and I think there is a tentative nature to what we're doing. I think how do we bring in a, a – how, how do we get to a bipartisan, bold and courageous and long-term approach is something we should always be striving for, I guess. Um, kind of take the politics out of it um, and, and really just put the foot on, put on, the, foot on, the, on the accelerator pedal, I think. Um, that that should be the goal. You're very close to this, uh, tenant. Are we gone past uh, the the debates of the last ten years, and now looking at how we do it? Is is that what we're we're talking about? Well, I think there's there's a lot of accumulated battle scars uh, from the the events of the last fifteen or twenty years uh, in this space. We can't talk about the last decade anymore. It's like time's marching on. Uh, I think if you look only at the federal politics, then things are pretty fraught uh, in terms of continuity of policy. The uh, the, the federal opposition um, did, really did not engage with uh, this policy at all in terms of uh, the development of it and uh, their, their headline stance is, is against it. Uh, if you look at the state level, there is a huge amount of bipartisanship these days. Mm, mm. Uh, not, you know, uh, linking arms and singing kumbaya, but a, uh, a a lot of genuine commitment on all sides of the aisle to it grappling with the same uh, practical problems of making the transition happen. And I'm hopeful that federal politics is heading in that direction uh, in the medium term as well. For the time being, like as as Paul said, what's done can be undone. And the safeguard mechanism, despite the fact that we've been talking about legislative changes, like 95% of the safeguard mechanism sits in regulations that the minister of the day can issue and reissue. And the, the parliament may get a chance to uh, strike them out, but it's a, it's a high bar. To, to pass a motion affirmatively to to strike out those regs. So uh, the the policy of the government of the day, whatever that government is, will play a huge role in how the safeguard works and evolves. I think Innes was right when he said this uh, this gives much needed certainty. I'm not sure if 
you're the expert on the safeguard as to whether or not it provides certainty, but uh, business has always wanted as much needed uh, this certainty that we know where we're going so that we can just get on with business. It's uh, a measure of certainty. Yeah. We need to keep coming back and, and addressing that question. Are we getting closer? So, you know, how much certainty does business understand? Talking about unresolved issues, um, a few weeks ago, the Prime Minister was in America and announced the AUKUS Agreement, the Australian-UK-United States Agreement for Australia to have nuclear submarines based in Australia and uh, to have a nuclear submarine capability for our Defence Force. And out of that uh, came a, a short debate on whether or not Australia should have nuclear energy um, the argument, as I understand it, or the position, as I understand it, is that the nuclear submarines will require some sort of nuclear industry to sustain. And if we're going to have a nuclear industry, we should have nuclear, um, uh, uh, you know, nuclear energy. What occurs to me uh, is that we've been having this debate for as long as I can remember, like mm-hmm. 30 years or something rather, and yet around the world, nuclear energy has never really become a big thing. There are some areas where that have nuclear Electricity, uh, nuclear generated electricity. Last time we talked about it on this podcast, uh, you put some numbers up that it's not really as feasible as what everyone thinks. Do you, can you just give us a couple of minutes, sir, guys, on what where the nuclear generated electricity concept is at? All right. Well, this is a controversial area. Like people have got, or give your own opinion, perhaps. People have got lots of thoughts about this, and 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 uh, our listeners, I bet, have got some. Um, some diverse and interesting insights on this question. Mm, mm. But, like, nuclear electricity, like, it is a globally significant source of electricity generation today. Uh, France's power fleet is famously um, heavily nuclear, uh, but it's also a, a contributor in many other countries. It also is true, though, that it's never fulfilled the hopes that many people had of it in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, you know, at one point, the the hope or the slogan from, from some was that electricity was going to be too cheap to meter as a result of uh, the, the wonders of the atom. Um, and the, the issues have been, broadly, that the, the capital costs of building a nuclear power plant are very high and they have gotten higher over time. They they have not fallen with uh, experience and learning so far. Uh, and uh, also th- there have been a lot of safety concerns and to address those concerns, regulatory processes have been put in place in countries with a nuclear industry that uh, like they take a lot of navigating. If you want to get a new reactor design certified and, and approved in the United States, like that's a long process to go through. And so uh, some countries have um, have kept, uh, well, intermittently have, have made more efforts uh, in this space. China's deploying in absolute terms a large amount of nuclear. Um, but, yeah, it's never quite reached... Um, uh, criticality. Uh, the hope of the the most plausible nuclear proponents today is that small modular reactors, which are highly standardised and can be largely produced, or that the the guts of them can be produced in a factory and not con- constructed sui generis on site, 
uh, that that can be a pathway to much lower capital costs. And like, I don't know, we'll see. Uh, like the, the sorts of numbers that are emerging out of a bunch of deals were done recently by uh, an outfit uh, called Last Energy with uh, Polish um, regional power authorities uh, to, to deliver a bunch of these small modular reactors uh, late this decade. And, you know, you've got to, got to take uh, numbers in a press release, firstly with a pinch of salt, and then you've got to run them through a spreadsheet to try and interpret what they mean. Looks to me like the power from these things is is translating back to still in the region of, I don't know, um, 100 to $150 a megawatt hour, which is it's not, it's not very attractive for like generic bulk electricity. It may be incredibly important for some contexts, for some regions, but if you can generate uh, renewables for uh, like currently $50 a megawatt hour in 20 years time, maybe $30 a megawatt hour, yes, you've got all these costs which cannot be underestimated for integration and transmission and storage and flexibility Um but you can probably do better than 100 to 150 dollars a megawatt hour. Now, if those if those projects, if, if that technology can actually establish a strong learning rate and and come down sharply with greater deployment, well, that could be very exciting. But this this looks like a place. This this looks like still a technology for niches and for places that have otherwise bad options. I think uh, that's what I was thinking. My my intro was badly worded. I, I guess what I was trying to say is that I've been hearing about this for 30 years and we still don't seem to have moved the needle strongly one way or the other. It's still sort of sitting there with some people very passionate and other people, yeah, it's not going to work. Paul, what's your thoughts? How, how do you see it fitting into the whole energy equation? Um, look, I, I think it's worth, you know, people are continuing to, you know, do research and development to look at different options and, you know, I'm happy for that to continue on. I think it's it's, it's good to, to look at all these different small modular reactors, fusion, thorium, kind of all sorts of things that, that people are doing in the nuclear space. Um, but what I often find in the nuclear discussions is that it's, um, it's seen as uh, the discussion in Australia seems to be one of goes one of two ways. One is that it's kind of anti renewables um, because we need base load and we need to replace coal and gas with nuclear, um, and also a, a delay of action as well. So actually, we we should really wait for nuclear. We should develop up a nuclear industry, and um, and I think uh, both of those are quite dangerous. I think we can be continuing to deploy things now that are commercial. Um, and CSIRO keeps telling us year after year that uh, wind and solar with storage is the foremost, the cheapest form of electricity generation in Australia, um, and we should be ploughing on with that. Now, if nuclear, you know, some sort of uh, commercial or technical, you know, kind of uh, wow event happens in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, then we should look to grasp it as well. Um, we don't need to do what be along there. I don't think it's where it needs to be. Tenants outlined the figures of where it's at. Um, uh, it shouldn't be uh, an excuse to not act on on developing clean source, cleaner sources of energy now. Uh, that that would be my take on it. And that's a great place to stop. Uh, let's talk again in a month. We've um, chewed on some very interesting issues today. Uh, we have 
try to address what on earth is going on in uh, the National Reconstruction Fund, the safeguard mechanism, and now nuclear. Oh, let's have some more fun in, uh, in, in a month. <laughs> it's nice chatting with you guys. Have a good month. Thank you, Tenant. See you soon. Who knows what the next month will serve up to us? Uh, it, it will be interesting to see. Let's, let's talk in a month and see what happened. And, Paul, have a good one. Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks, Tenant. Look forward to chatting next month. And that's it for us. We'll talk to you in a month. This is James Scotland. See you later.